going in our series, Jesus' Hope, walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in chapter 10. We're going to be heading into 11 tonight. So we've got just a couple, um, well, a few more weeks left in this series. After the series is done, we're going to be walking through Ephesians with the title of the, the series being I Am, and then a big blank. It's all about finding our identity in Christ and what that means to really identify uh, with the gospel and the implications of it. So it's going to be good. But before we do that, we will um, continue on in Ecclesiastes. And we kicked off uh, kind of a mini-series within a series last week in chapter 10 called Wisdom in Action, right? We all want wisdom. Solomon's like an old grandpa giving us wisdom at the end of his life. He he, uh, lived as a king. He had all the money. He had uh, 700 wives, 300 mistresses. He had uh, all the land, all the resources. People came from all over to see him, to see of his great might, and they would leave saying he is twice as amazing as we had heard he was. He had everything. He had everything you could ever want under the sun, and yet he says over and over and over and over in this book two phrases. He says that, uh, number one, said, everything is meaningless. Like the wind, everything's meaningless. And number two, um, this is all under the sun. So on one hand, it's incredibly depressing that everything's meaningless. On the other hand, it's incredibly hopeful because it's only under the sun. It's only life on earth. It's only separated from God. If you've got God, you've got everything. It changes everything. And so We need to know as we walk through this um, tonight, and I emphasized it last week, and so I want to do that again. As we walk through these these 15 principles, five we covered last week, five we'll cover tonight, five we'll cover next week, that this these wisdom principles, they're, they're not just theoretical, they're not just intellectual. If you come and you say, I'm going to get me five more principles that Solomon says here, if you want to actually be wise, not just know the right thing to do, but to do the right thing, and you want to have this information that you can actually apply not just talk about wisdom, but know what to do, um, but you don't want to engage on a heart level with God, then none of this matters. Because you read every verse of the Bible in context of the passage, every passage in context of the chapter, every chapter in context of the book, and every book of the Bible in context of the whole Bible. And the whole Bible points to the good news, and along the way it gives us good advice. But the good advice doesn't mean anything if you don't know the good news. And so Solomon's giving us good advice, And here's some things that you need, some principles that you can hide in your heart and you can apply as you walk through life. But it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. And if you don't see that connecting factor, you can start to do the right things in life with the wrong heart and you miss all of it. You miss everything. And so... Um, the good news is that Jesus died for our sins, that we can live in him, we can be forgiven, we can have his grace and his mercy cover our lives. We can stand before God in righteousness. Um, Until we get to heaven, God cares about how we live. And so here's some wisdom for us tonight. Let's uh, do a quick review. If you weren't with us last week and you want to know what the first five principles were, uh, we are in the middle of these Proverbs, and so we're kind of summing up each verse or a couple verses at a time. And the first five that we covered last week, uh, Solomon said in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 10, he said, consider the risk. He said, you can be tearing down an old wall, a snake might get up and bite you, you might be working in a quarry, and yet stones can come and crush you. Some things in life are inherently risky, and you've got to consider it. You've got to see if it's worth it. Verse 10, he, he told us about working smarter, not harder, that there's... Uh, a million things that each one of us can be doing to be um, making life easier. 
Not because the easy way is the way we want to go, but because life is hard enough the way it is. He says, you don't have to, you don't have to um, use a dull axe to cut down a tree. You can sharpen it. You can be smarter in the way you do things. He then told us in verse 11, uh, don't wait until it's too late. He said, what good is it for a snake charmer uh, to be a snake charmer if the snake bites him before he charms it? Right? Well, you got to make decisions in life, sometimes urgent decisions. You got to know what's urgent, what's not, and you got to make godly decisions. Verses 12 through 14, he told us to keep tabs on our mind and our mouth. He talked about our thought life and, uh, and, and then what comes out of our mouth and how they're related. And you got to keep tabs on them. And then, last but not least, he talked about how a fool, in verse 14, um, sees a little bit in life as incredibly exhausting, and they don't even know their way back into town. And it was a proverb explaining that um, foolish people are exhausted when they try to be wise because they just don't know how to be wise. They don't know where they're going in life, and so they don't know how to get there. And if you try to draw wisdom from a foolish person, it exhausts them. And so we got to know God's plan, and we got to know what Christ wants of us. So that's where we were last week. Let's jump on in, verses 16 and 17 this week. If you're new with us, we uh, use the NLT, the New Living Translation, for this series. Usually we're in the ESV, but we chose NLT for this one. Verse 16, Solomon says, What sorrow for the land ruled by a servant, the land whose leaders feast in the morning, and happy is the land whose king is a noble leader, and whose leaders feast at the proper time to gain strength for their work, not to get drunk. So principle number six, value leadership. Sometimes you get to choose your leaders. Sometimes you don't get to choose your leaders. But we're all under leadership. And the, more, the, the further you go in life, the more you realize your quality of life is directly related to the quality of leaders in your life. And so you've got to be thankful for the good ones. And if you've got an opportunity to choose, make sure that you're not choosing bad leaders. Choose wisely. In verse 16, he's, he's essentially telling us that this is the bad part. So verse 16 says, what sorrow. Verse 17 says, happy is the land. So these are, um, these are opposite of each other. Verse 16 is basically saying, there's, there's nations, right? There's businesses, there's households, there's churches who have foolish leaders, and foolish leaders, they're going to play when they should be working. They're going to be unproductive. They're, they're going to be foolish. He says, sorrow for the land ruled by a servant, right? Because the leaders aren't doing their job. And so the servants are the ones doing it. There's a, there's a lot of businesses, nations, households that have faithful servants, but foolish leaders. And that ends up just being miserable for who? The servant. Say, I know, I'm going to keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing, keep my head to the ground, but I can't change my boss's heart. I can't change their mind. I can't change them. So that's the sad part. But then he says in verse 17, happy is the land whose king is a noble leader and whose leaders feast at the the proper time to gain strength for their work, not to get drunk. So in other words, he's saying, Life is good with wise, hardworking leaders, the kind of leaders that celebrate after the game, right? 
That there's leaders who say, okay, I wake up in the morning and I know I'm a leader, not because I'm a great person. I'm not, I'm not a leader because I'm cool. I'm a leader because God gave me authority to do a job, whether it be an employer, whether it be a, a um, spouse, right? Parents are leaders. Uh, whether it be the president, whoever it might be, you got a job to do. And, and Solomon's saying, how nice it is when leaders wake up and actually do what they were hired to do and appointed to do. And, and, and when they go party, when they celebrate after the game and the work is done, they're not doing it just to be fools. They're doing it so that they can be strengthened for waking up tomorrow morning and doing it all over again. You want people like that, who are productive, who don't cut corners. I remember, I remember 2003. You're going to hear a little bit about my K-State fanhood tonight. I remember 2003 in the Big 12 tournament in basketball. There was a man named Purvis Pasco. Funny name, Purvis Pasco. And we were winning the game. There was a couple seconds left. I forget who we were even playing. And, and we were winning by one or two. And with a few seconds left, they passed the ball to old Purvis. And he grabs the ball and he just starts running with it because he threw his arms in the air thinking the game's over. We won. And yet there's still a couple seconds left on the clock. They called him for traveling, gave the other team the ball. The other team shoots a three-pointer at the buzzer, wins the stinking game. Purvis is famous. He got his jersey over his face, just depressed, right? I remember just a few years ago watching one of the cornerbacks for the K-State football team running uh, an interception back into the end zone. And right before they get to the goal line, they drop the ball because that's the cool thing to do now, right? And the other team got it. No touchdown. Other team got it at the 20-yard line. Just depressing. You see it all over the place. You see people celebrating when there's still work to be done. Solomon's saying, blessed is the land that's got good leadership. You see, foolish bosses, they might be the life of the party. But it's not good to be the life of the party if you're the court gesture. And they might think that they're having fun, but they're foolish. So let me ask you, if you're a leader, and if you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're a boss, you're a leader. An employer, you're a leader. Most of us are leaders in some form or fashion. Are you unproductive? Are you foolish? Are you honoring God with the authority that's been given to you? If you're a parent, or are you trying to play good cop, bad cop with your spouse, and you let them be the bad cop and discipline your kids so the 5% of the time that you're with them, you just let them run and play and have fun, and you spoil them? You don't discipline them? Or are you a boss? Are you an employer who values friendship and being liked so much that you won't make hard decisions because you don't want to offend anyone and you don't want to lose, not just your employees, just you don't want to lose their friendship. Look at that little moth flying around. Some of us, we won't do the hard thing because we want our employees, we want our kids to be our friends. They're not our friends. They are not your friends. They never could be your friend. You're their parent. Being a parent is better than being a friend. Good leaders produce results. Let me ask you, for those of you who have leaders, which would be everyone in this room, what are the good leaders in your life? 
What are, what are the bad ones? How can you strengthen the bad ones? Right? So, so you could complain about your pastor. You could complain about your boss. You could complain about your spouse. Or you can strengthen them and bless them and help them. How can you do that? How can you show thankfulness to those leaders that are good, that make life easier for you, better for you, who do the hard things to make sure that you have the best path? Jesus is the best leader. And you know how Jesus does it. He says, you got work to do. Build the kingdom now and we'll celebrate in heaven. There'll be a celebration, but there's work to be done right now. Value leadership. It's wisdom. Verse 18. Solomon says, laziness leads to a sagging roof. Idleness leads to a leaky house. So laziness is not wanting to do something. Idleness is not actually doing that something. Number seven, laziness creates messes. Laziness creates messes. We had uh, like 16 cameras installed in the church, and we wanted to make sure that obviously we were safe for those who come here on Sundays. And, um, and and so we trusted the company, the people to do this, and they came and they, they did it. Um, and then one Sunday morning, just a few minutes before the worship service started, I knew it was raining outside and we got leaks in the roofs and whatnot. And, um, and I heard like, like water coming into the building from my office. And I thought, that's weird. What is happening? And, and so I went uh, into the kids area and in the corner of one of the kids' rooms, water was literally like a little river coming from the roof and just hitting the carpet. Like it was just soaked. It wasn't kind of wet. It was soaked. Let's put a trash can under it. We went and investigated, and we looked up, and we saw that there was a hole just straight through the roof where they drilled the camera. They didn't patch it, though. They decided they weren't going to put it there. And so they drilled through the ceiling and drilled through the roof. Laziness causes leaks, right? We had a little leak not too long ago. We got a lot of leaks in this building, by the way. We got a little leak in the, the water fountain right here. Who even uses a water fountain anymore, right? I don't even know it was there for half the time I've been here. But we had a little leak until some guys went downstairs to the ladies' bathroom and said, let's just find that leak. And the whole ceiling comes down because it had been rotting and leaking for a whole a long time. You know what it's like. To see a mess? How many times has your laziness or procrastination led to anything better than a mess? Like, no one has a good story. No one is like, you know what? I was really lazy with this one area of my life, and God honored it, and things got so much better. And people were like, dude, what are you doing with your life? You're amazing. Teach us what you're doing. Nobody ever said, you know what? When I procrastinated for that test, um, I was more uh, aware of the material, and I felt so much more confident going into the test that I just, I just felt great. I aced it. Like, no, we regret every single time we've ever been lazy. We regret every time that we've been a procrastinator. And yet we still do it. You sleep in, you're late for work. You got a mess. You don't organize. Someone says, hey, make sure to pick them up at school. You don't pick them up at school. You got a mess because you forgot what they said you don't study for that test until the last second your grades fall apart parents get mad you got a mess we got messes 
And I think greater than that, laziness doesn't just create messes. Laziness is dangerous. It's dangerous. Like if you're an employer, some of you are employers, and you know if you're going to hire someone, you want to know about their life, not just what they'll say in an interview, but you want to know more than that. And you pay attention to things like the way they're dressed. Um, you pay attention to even the, the vehicle they drove to work or to the interview. You, you want to see their personal space, don't you? You want to you get a feel for what their desk would look like because you know it, there are some things in people's lives that will tell you a lot about them. And if you see areas of their life that are lazy, that are sloppy, you can assume if they don't value taking care of their own stuff and themselves, why would I hire them to take care of mine? They probably won't. They might for a week or two or a month or a year. But long term, if they're just lazy, they're just lazy. They're lazy. So it's dangerous. Let me ask you, are you lazy? Is that you? Are you lazy with your time management? Or are you lazy with your organization? Are you lazy with your health? Are you supposed to be taking medicines? You got family that say, take your stinking pills, take your medicine, take your blood pressure medicine, take your heart pills, take whatever you need to. Are you lazy with your exercise? Are you lazy spiritually? How many times has Netflix won over a Bible study? Are, are you lazy emotionally? I know I need to take a break. I need to rest. I need some family time, but I'm just going to keep pushing through. Vacations are for the week. Time off is for everyone but me so you don't ever get rejuvenated emotionally. Some, um, some don't realize, they don't realize the agony of their own laziness. You ever been looking for like an apartment or you've been looking for a house to buy and you walk into someone else's property and you're just like, oh my gosh, this is nasty. Like, how did they live? And you're like, you're not trying to judge. You're not trying to be arrogant. But you're just like, this is sick. This is gross. You see leaks or you see just nastiness. You see mold. You think to yourself, man, how could anyone live here? And then you realize that when someone sells a house, they got a decision to make. You can either list a house what if they don't do any repairs? What's that called? As is. So you can just say, you know what? I've been kind of lazy. Maybe we haven't had the money financially. There's lots of reasons why people don't fix things up. But we let things go downhill. Houses, they, they deteriorate, but we let ours go. And we're just going to sell it as is. Isn't that depressing? Because you're like, uh, does that mean I'm getting a deal? <laughs> does it feel like it's a deal if it's as is? It just means they don't take care of their stuff for whatever reason. Some are justified. Or they can fix it all up and wonder, why didn't I fix it up when I can enjoy it? Now I'm fixing it all up for someone else. And let me make the spiritual connection for you. If, if, you're, if you're lazy spiritually, you've got to understand, you're going to show up one of those two options on Judgment Day. And you can either say, as is. I didn't put in the word. I didn't devote myself to the Lord. I, I didn't take the gospel serious. I don't care about Jesus. And you're going to sit in your sin and you're going to be dead in your sin and God's going to say, okay. You didn't want to do what I said. You're going to live with things as is. It's not going to be good. Or you can see 
your sin in light of Jesus' holiness, and you can say, I'm a sinner, I'm broken, I need to be fixed, I can't fix myself, and you can let him restore you and redeem you. And some of us are spiritually lazy, not that we reject salvation, but we reject sanctification. And so we find ourselves knowing Jesus as Lord intellectually, but we're not letting him do a work on our heart. And we're saying, I'm going to just stay as is. If you could just redeem me and save me without any of the actual change or work, I'd like to stay that way. And so we neglect getting into God's word. We neglect devoting ourselves to him. We neglect taking any of the steps of faith we know. And then as the rainstorms of life come down and we wonder why we suck and why we're struggling so much, and we say, God, why aren't you helping me? He's like, I've been trying to sanctify you for years to take steps of faith and obedience. And you didn't build your house on the rock and you wonder why the hurricane wiped your house away. You don't blame God. You, you, you look at your own life. Say, I knew better. I just didn't do better. So whether it's your house or your spiritual house, laziness always creates messes. Check your house for leaks. Don't let a leak become a flood. And recognize that humans are like houses. Gotta be in maintenance mode. There's always something in your life that can be sanctified. Don't let hidden sins stay hidden sins. God wants to care for you holistically, emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially. He wants to transform the way you think about all of life. Verse 19. A party gives laughter, and wine gives happiness, and money gives everything. Sounds like a fun verse, right? Who wants to party? Nobody. I'm going alone, I guess. We'll just... (laughs) Sometimes... Principle number eight, invest wisely. Invest wisely. What do we mean here? There's... There's a couple meanings for this verse. Some of, okay, so most of these principles, because Solomon is a king and he had money and he had resources and he knew about authority, most of these have kind of an undertone of authority or financial consequences. So we've talked a lot about investment and whatnot, and we will, we'll continue to do it. Um, And so the first of the two meanings just has to do with, with money. Like if you just take it for what it is, and recognize this both has a meaning in context and a bigger meaning. The first is save some money. Cash is king, right? Like it's good to, to party. That gives you laughter. And wine gives you happiness, right? But money can help a bunch of stuff. Money can't cure everything, but it can help with a lot of things. And if you're in crises and you have health issues or you need to pay bills or you lose your job, it's good to have a little bit of money. The Bible talks about stewardship and saving and all that kind of stuff. So at the most basic level, invest wisely. Be smart with your money because you never know when you're going to need it. But the second thing, and maybe the bigger issue with investment is investing in things that give a high rate of return and bless other, maybe every other area of your life. See, these three 
different verses, well, verses within a verse, essentially, these phrases, um, show you two things that are specific and maybe kind of narrow, and then one that is wide, it's broad. So a party gives you what? Laughter. It's very specific, right? You want to have a little laughter, you, you can have some fun. You can party. And, and then wine, it's also very specific. It, it might bring you a little happiness. You might feel better a little bit, right? But money gives everything. So what Solomon's saying, big picture-wise, is there are things that might bless you in one little area of life, and then there's other things that you can invest in that can help in all the areas of life. So, let me give you an example. Some areas that you don't want to be so narrow-minded in, in terms of investing wholly in something. If you want to date someone, if you want to get married, you, you know you don't invest fully into someone just because they're good-looking. But maybe they don't love the Lord. They don't have their life together in any way, shape, or form. They got disaster written all over them. But hey, they would satisfy my desire to be with someone handsome or cute. And it's like, that, that's not worth fully investing. Or you look at your life and the way that you spend your time and your energy, and you know people who spend like crazy amounts of time, way more than they should on hobbies, right? So sports or woodworking or, or you fill in the blank. And it's like, eh, you can enjoy those things, but is the proportion of investment worth what you're actually getting out of it? And in many cases, it's not. But there's some things that you can invest in that bless everything. You invest in God, obviously that affects every area of your life. You invest in in your marriage, that's going to strengthen your household and your children. You invest in your children, that's going to strengthen, you name it. There's things that you invest in that you know, oh man, this is like five birds with one stone. This is going to bless every area of life. It's worth it. I I know what it's like to to be silly with my time. I grew up in a family that... um, Loved K-State sports way too much. And we loved the Chiefs. And so on, on any given weekend in the fall, if the Chiefs, if K-State lost and the Chiefs lost, it was like a full weekend of misery in our house. Like, it was depressing. Like, hours after the game, members of the family, like, just not talking to each other, just kind of moping around. Just like this whole oppression. And then when they won, it's like, hey, everything's better. Life is better. This just feels better. Are you guys having a good weekend? It's sunnier outside. It's just fun. Life is good. Well, that was ingrained in me because that's just what we did when I was a kid. And through the years, I found myself um, getting on like K-State message boards and uh, checking out recruiting and just something that I do on my own and just for fun, right? And, and sometimes I have to stop myself and say, is this worth the investment, particularly this past Saturday? How many of you watched the K-State and Vanderbilt game? Yeah, see, I can tell because you're, you're all solemn on your faces right now. I watched that stinking game knowing we should beat this team. I watched it saying, we're, we're beating ourselves. This is miserable. This is the worst kind of enjoyment. Like, this is, this is horrible as a fan. And I remember thinking as it was coming to a close, and I was kind of starting to boil up a little bit. Like, this is, this is so pathetic. It's just so pathetic of a game. And I remember thinking, I don't want Tara to see the score. I just want her to pretend like this game never happened. I don't want her to ask about it. I don't want her to talk about it. Because I'm the kind that like will watch a game by myself and try to just 
Because I don't, it's weird, I know. And she asked about it. And like, I got to pray through this. Welcome to real life for me. I had to pray through this, knowing that I'm going to go lead a congregation the next morning. I got to fill them with hope. And I am depressed in my soul because of what I just watched. And constantly I'm having to remind myself, it's just a stinking game, a game you got no control over, a game of 18, 19, 20-year-olds. It doesn't matter. Be happy for the kids who won. Who cares? It's just, it just, it just a stupid game. And you're like, yeah, you should know this. Well, we know a lot, <laughs> but we don't feel some of the truth we know. And so I found myself, and I have many times saying, man, turn off cable. Get rid of your subscription to some stinking message board. Like, it just isn't worth that amount of time, that amount of investment. What's that area in your life? Maybe you read books, and it used to be a good thing because you like knowledge, but you just read way too many books. Maybe you, you, you're just obsessed with Netflix. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're investing in a hobby that should not look like a career, but it looks like a career because you're putting way too much energy. Maybe, maybe you're investing in your home and projects and work in a way that is way out of proportion to what it deserves. When you invest in Jesus, you not only never regret it, but you know that it changes every other part of your life. The return, the rate of return on investment with Christ is not only eternal, it's incredible. And it transforms your marriage and it transforms your kids. And if you go after each one of those areas of your life, say, I'm going to invest in my kids, I'm going to invest in, but you don't invest in Jesus, then you will never experience the power and the joy that he intends in those areas of life because only he can give it. All life flows through him and from him and for him. And you've got to make him number one. You've got to invest in him. And so if you see your week kind of miserable, kind of depressing, there's a really, really, really good chance if you go back to the amount of things you invested in this week and the time you invested, that God was not a, a huge priority because it's directly related to your joy. Verse 20. Never make light of the king, even in your thoughts. And don't make fun of the powerful, even in your own bedroom. For a little bird might deliver, a little bird might be Twitter, might deliver your message and tell them what you said. Principle number nine, don't undermine authority. There's about a million principles just from this one. Don't gossip, don't undermine authority. You ever heard the phrase, a little birdie told me. That might just come from this verse. A little birdie told me, when you heard something that you shouldn't have heard, you say, a little birdie told me. You see, here's the deal. Those who are under authority, no matter what, whether it be your children feeling this way about you, or you feeling this way about your parents, or you and your employer, or you in this nation, or whatever the case is, it is inevitable that those under authority will get frustrated and want to vent about those who are in authority. You just know it. You know it's going to happen. You know what happens in your life. That's one of the miseries of being an authority, is you know someone's grumbling about you somewhere <laughs> on a regular basis. Because you know what? 
In most cases, we grumble about those who are in authority over us. Some of us spend way too much time invested in complaining and grumbling and gossiping about those in authority. Just because they're in authority doesn't give you the right to grumble and complain. And as Solomon's saying, you need to watch yourself. You need to watch yourself. Because it's not okay to do it behind closed doors. A couple weeks ago, I preached in Hutchinson. I had a good chunk of people, you know, especially if they're just going to be nice, supportive Christians and they see a young pup up there. And they're going to come and, and, hey, good job, young man, good job, young man. And it's like a line at a funeral or something where they just all shake in your hand. And you know that not everyone likes that sermon. Not everyone likes me. Not everyone likes the way that I preach or teach. Like, you just know if a few thousand people are going to be hearing this over a two-day period, probably, maybe even a couple few hundred that are like, yeah. I don't like that guy. You just know that. I walked in the second day. So I preached Saturday night. That was recorded, sent out to all the campuses. Show up Sunday morning, and it's like 15 minutes before I'm about to go on stage. I walk into a room, and I hear two people talking about my sermon. And it wasn't, it wasn't like, he's amazing. <laughs> no, like they were just straight up talking about what was wrong with it and what was wrong with me. And it was really awkward because I, I just walked into the room and stood next to him. And one of them didn't know that I was standing there. And when he turned and did this number, and I just smiled, <laughs> it was really, really, really uncomfortable for him. And I stayed there and, and let the uncomfortableness stay uncomfortable. Because sometimes it should feel uncomfortable. I could have bailed. But that's not sanctification. That's not grace. I could have just said, you know what? He shouldn't be in this room. I'll just take the pain of knowing you hate me and leave and build myself up in the corner crying in the fetal position. But we do it all the time. Who are you, who are you most likely, who are you prone to ranting about, to complain about in your life? Is it your boss? Is it your spouse? Some of us get so locked in to, gum, to, to complaining and grumbling and gossiping about certain people, we wouldn't know what life would be like without complaining about them. Some of us have relationships with people that are only founded on gossip. Like, oh, I see that coworker. I don't even know what they do in their life, but gossip. That's the only way we connect. We just complain about other coworkers. And it's not okay. God's saying, this is going to come back to haunt you. And sometimes you feel the haunt come back on earth, and sometimes it's just on judgment day. Be thankful if it comes back on earth so that you can repent before judgment day. You see, I think um, gossip, slander, like most things, are poisonous in that they often taste good going down, but you know they're going to kill you inside. And... There's a deception in our culture about venting. A lot of people think that it's their right to vent. And I think this shows the lack of maturity in not only the church, but in our culture as a whole. That we feel like the only way that we can feel better about some situations is if we just let it off our chest. 
And we're told from a young age, do whatever you got to take. So we have unhealthy coping mechanisms because we're letting emotions lord over our lives instead of taking ownership and saying, you don't control me. There's nothing that's going to boil up in me that demands me to obey it outside of the spirit of God. And yet we, we tell our kids, we say, well, if you have a hard time, here's, here's what I do. Just go outside and just scream. Or just get a pillow and just yell into it. Or, hey, I'm your mama. You know you can always talk to me. Hey, hey, hey I'm, I'm your friend. You can always talk. And so we teach people that venting is healthy. And so what happens is we just spread the poison. We feel falsely justified in our actions because when we get it off our chest, we feel relieved, but all we did was just spread venom all over our family or our friends or whoever we just talked to about it. And now we got them thinking toxically about the same person or situation that we felt toxic about. And yet, how many of our marriages we would consider this intimacy? Shoot, that's why we get married, right? So you got someone to talk to. And we believe there's so many things I can't say in public, so many things I couldn't say to my boss, but when I go home and we close the door and it's just me and my spouse, I'm going to unload. And we say, well, that's just a healthy marriage. There's a reason why half the time your spouse gets quiet and they start to disengage, and it's not just because you're uninteresting. It's because they're uncomfortable. That the toxicity is spreading. And that your hatred for your situation or your boss or whatever's going on in your life, the drama is now coding them. And they feel it. And it doesn't feel good. If you want to vent, don't vent to your spouse because you just spread the disease. Don't vent to your mama because you'll just spread the disease. Vent to Jesus because he will confront your wicked heart and he's the only one who can change it. If you get your spouse in a room and you both agree on a situation, yeah, they were wrong, yeah, they were wrong. Okay, we can sleep tonight. Nothing changes. The only thing you did was you got more accustomed to complaining. But you complain to Jesus and you find yourself talking to Jesus about someone. He's going to break your heart for that person, for that situation. He's going to help you to see it differently through his eyes. And he, if you've got a legit relationship with God, is going to convict you and say, I love them. I died for them. Watch your mouth. And he's going to be able to change your heart. Go to someone who can do something about it. That's Jesus. Last but not least, going into chapter 11. Verse 1, this is kind of an odd one. Send your grain across the seas, and in time, profits will flow back to you. Tenth principle we see, wisdom in action, is take risks you won't regret. Take risks that you won't regret. Some of the scholars, they um, translate the Hebrew in a couple different ways, and and there's a there's a couple different thoughts. And I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, and I'm not going to pretend to be. But depending on your translation, whatever you got, um, it very well could be translated instead of send your grain across the seas, it could be cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. And so, the the big uh, discussion is: Does this refer to generosity? Kind of like um, you think about 
you think about bread, and, and the scholars would say, well, they were more like wafers, you know, 3,000 years ago, and they were throwing these on water, and, and it would stay, and, and things would be able to eat them. Kind of like if you see, if you see um, ducks, you know, you go to a park, and you take bread, and you throw it, and it floats on the water, and then a duck comes and eats it, and you realize, um, hey, someone has need, I help them. So some scholars say this is just a, a verse about generosity, seeing need, helping. Um, others, and I would tend to err on this side um, because of the context, say that it, it's more about just investing wisely. You see, all investments are risky, right? If you uh, are in Solomon's shoes and you're writing this, you know, hey, I can invest in my own people, in my own country, right? And, and overseas foreign investments and trade would have been much more difficult 3,000 years ago, right? Because you've got to build ships, you've got to send people, it's going to take months to know what's happening, but you've got to take a big chance. You've got to say, okay, if I'm going to put a whole bunch of my supplies on a ship and send it overseas, I'm not going to hear back for maybe like nine months, depending on where this goes, as to whether this got to where it's going, whether they purchased it the way I wanted them, whether this investment worked out. All investments are risky. He tells us way back in chapter 10, remember the very first principle was consider the risk. But this principle is take the risks that are worth it. Take the risks that are worth it, the ones that you won't regret. He's saying, hey, in my life I found if if you take a big chance and you send your supplies overseas, it might just pay off. Where you can imagine some kings, no, we're not doing that. I don't know where my stuff went. I don't know who has it. I don't feel secure about that. Let me ask you, what risks do you deem worth taking? Maybe, um, maybe you sacrifice to stay up late uh, as a 30, 40, 50-year-old because you're going back to school. You say, that degree is worth it. That master's degree, that doctorate degree, I want to finish it out. I'm going to sacrifice. This is going to take a lot of time. It's going to take family time, but it's worth it. How many, how many of you say, you know what, I want to date. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw, oh, this is risky. This is risky. I'm going to throw my name and my profile up there on a dating website or two. That's how it's happening with the young folks nowadays, right? And this, I don't know what's going to happen. I could get some weirdos. But I want to find a spouse. So in my mind, it's worth it. Maybe you don't have the finances to help your children in some of their health issues or going to that private school you want them to go to, and you trust financially, it'll be there. So you go ahead and schedule that appointment or that orientation. No one, I think this is best for my kids. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Sometimes you and I know inherently inside, this risk is worth it. Why? This is always the big, the, the rule of them. Because I know I won't regret it. The big areas in your life where you know you won't regret risk are with your marriage in the sense that I'm going to fight for my marriage to keep it strong. For my kids, I'm going to do what's best for my kids. My relationship with God, I'm going to invest wholly in it because you know inherently, you know, I know I won't look back and regret that. Nobody gets to the end of life and says, I wish I spent more time with God, my spouse, and my kids. Should have spent less time with them. No one says that. But they always say the opposite. Should have been with my kids. Don't want to sing Cat in the Cradle. Should have been with my spouse. Don't want to sing an old country song about heartbreak. Should have been with God. 
Because everyone knows you should spend time with God. See, the biggest risk ultimately is to give your life to a God who's unseen and to trust him with that life. To engage in a mission for a kingdom that's unseen, but to believe that it's expanding on earth. Everything Solomon's talking about is the seen. Things you can see, the kingdom that we know, and ultimately God's saying all of this scripture, everything points to you investing your life in a God that's unseen for a kingdom that's unseen. A reality that's unseen, but you know that it's there and you know the power of it. I am... I'll wrap it up, but I, I want to I wanna share. I was speaking at a men's conference out of state one time, and I preached some, some personal stuff, some vulnerable stuff um, as it tied to the specific passage that I was preaching. And I, I talked about the anxiety disorder that I had as, as a kid and, and all of the junk. Many of you guys have heard of, about that and my story, and, um, and it got bad. It got to the point where uh, when I was when I was 21, I broke up with the girl that I was engaged to because I couldn't leave my apartment. I remember walking into my EMT class and I just told the instructor, and this just killed me because I'm not the kind that, that wants to be irresponsible. I said, I'm going to have to drop this class, but I promise you I will be back to finish it. She just kind of looked at me like, we'll see. But I couldn't go to school. I couldn't leave. I remember before I had broken up with, with that gal, we, we couldn't go on dates because I didn't, I didn't want to leave. I was so scared of public humiliation. I was scared of public opinion. I was scared and insecure of everything. And you say, how does a 21-year-old guy get that way? How does anyone get that way? I remember there was a Spangles on 30th Street and Hutch just right down the road from me. I remember going there, saying it was like just three blocks. That's as far as I could go on a date. And we went and we just got a sandwich and I came back and it was terrifying for me. I did not know how it was going to change. And every area of my life that I saw risk, I said, it's not worth it. But this girl, I'm going to break up because this isn't worth it. With school, I'm going to quit because it's not worth it. In, in every area, I couldn't do it because the risk wasn't worth it. And, and then Jesus saved my soul. And I had a guy after this conference come up after hearing that part of my story. And he said, I got a 19-year-old daughter. And, she, and he started telling me her story. And it was just weirdly identical to mine. And how she's just gripped with fear and anxiety every day. And he said, tell me what I need to tell her. Of course, who am I? And so I said, man, I, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I can tell you this about my life. There was a turning point. It was one of the most definitive turning points in my entire life. Almost as equally powerful in my, in my mind as my own salvation. And it was when I came to a place of, of saying to myself, I'm going to follow Jesus I'm going to serve him and I'm going to do what he asks me to do even if I have to stand up in front of a million people and I am humiliated. At that point, I didn't know I'd be a preacher. And I am humiliated because this was what happened in my mind. The Spirit convicted me. 
because it's worth it. That was the game changer for me. So who cares what people think about me, even though I still struggle and will always to some degree of insecurities that humans have? Who who cares how it ends up? Who cares about the embarrassment? Who cares if I fail? I just got to follow Jesus. I will not. I will. I knew this even as a young believer. I will not regret being obedient to anything he ever tells me. tell you what, you want to see life change? My life after that moment, I started to see his power and his presence as he has lifted me up every time I got up to speak, say in the mirror, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I know, Ryan, you've done it a million times. Come on, you can do it. No, I can't do this. I can't do it. And I could talk myself up all day long. And God just says, I'm here. I'm here. I say, God, I pray. Philippians 4 over my life. I pray for that peace that transcends all understanding. You know how many times he's not given me? I've, I'm kidding you not. Hundreds of times I've prayed that over my life. You know how many times right before I've taken the stage or done anything risky for him? You know how many times I've not had a peace that, I kid you not, transcends understanding? Zero. He has been 100% faithful. And my mind is so set firm on the idea that every risk for God will be worth it and you will never regret it, that I can't even fathom at the age of 32, living most of my life as a heathen, I can't even fathom at this point living any other way than wholly obedient to him, fully knowing that I'll fail along the way, but I'll take everything, everything he says do, I gotta do it. What's God telling you to do? Everyone has a next step. There's always another step of faith. There's always another step of obedience. What's he telling you to do that feels risky? Your reputation is on the line. Your comfort is on the line. Your own plan for your own life is on the line. If you say yes to what he's telling you, you know that it's going to shake things up. Do you believe that it's worth it? You take the risks in life that you know you won't regret. Let me pray for you.